Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Tonight we're going to share with you about understanding confession. Understanding confession. A very important subject. Before we look at our first text, which is found in Hebrews chapter 3, let me just kind of set it up for us tonight. And he, remember, we just got done celebrating what? The resurrection of our Lord. His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. But now, in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer, which I believe is Paul, some don't, but that's okay. Doesn't matter who wrote it, it was written, and here it is for us to look over and study, right? So, in Hebrews, the first chapter, in the first chapter... It talks about how God at sundry times and time past spoke to the fathers by the prophets as in the last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, who upholds all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in other words, he continues where the gospels leave off and says, now he's resurrected right now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high he has a coronation service he has restored his glory right and before the angels of heaven he says all bow and worship him again he said again when I brought the first begotten into the war into the world this is what he said and so once again he restores everything that he left behind in that same first chapter, it goes to talk to us about these angels. He's better than any angel, greater than the angels. And he's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And at the end of the chapter, he talks about angels being ministers sent for us, to minister for us, because we are the heirs of salvation. Right? Then we take it over into chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about, now don't neglect this great salvation that you have in Jesus. He's complete completed the work of redemption he is seated at the father's right hand and then in chapter 2 he talks about how in order to accomplish what he did he had to robe himself in flesh and when he robed himself in flesh and took part of the same as we are flesh and blood the bible said he had to do this why so he could conquer him that had the power of death that is the devil this is still chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 and that way he could be a high priest who is tempted like as we are yet without sin so if you can see the progression here Jesus has died he rose again he's back in heaven now he sent the Holy Ghost he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high the angels are bound before him they are sent to do his bidding and minister for us because we're heirs of salvation and it talks about how he crushed Satan's head he destroyed Satan's works he broke Satan's power right he broke his power. He disarmed his demons. And really he sealed his doom. So if you can see this now. This is what this writer's talking about. Now he goes into chapter 3 and verse 1. And look at this verse. In that setting. In that context. Therefore holy brothers. This is from the English Standard Version. 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our, what? Confession. You know, Christianity is called a great confession. He's the high priest representing us before the throne of God. And what's the high priest of? The high priest of our confession. And that word in the Greek means the high priest of our saying the same thing. And basically what it means is you're not just aimlessly saying something. You're saying something that comes from a deep conviction of facts in your heart. In other words, you know everything I just said. You know how Jesus came. You know how he suffered. You know how he died. You know how he destroyed the works of Satan. And you know how he was raised up from the dead. And now he is seated where he's the high priest of the new creation. The high priest of our confession. Representing us before the throne of God. And representing what we say before the throne of Almighty God. And basically this confession he's talking about is. Our affirming something we believe. It is testifying to something we know. It's witnessing for a truth that you and I have embraced. It's not echoing somebody else or saying something that someone else says or someone told you to say. This is you affirming something you believe. Do you believe he died and rose again? You believe he's at the Father's right hand? You believe he's the high priest of the new and everlasting covenant? You believe his name is above every other name? Then guess what? You're going to say it from a deep conviction of facts. From your heart, you're going to say it. You're going to testify to it. And you're going to witness it before men. Just like in a court of law. What good would it do for me to go to a court of law and try to witness for something I've never seen? Or I don't know anything about. Recently, a situation took place. And it just happened to take place in our neighborhood. And... One day, about a few days after it happened, I got a knock on the door as a police officer. You know, you never have a good feeling when a police officer is knocking at your front door. It brought to mind, to my remembrance, a time when we got back from vacation. I think Andrew was about four years old. And we drove all the way back straight through from uh, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Cherry Grove area. And we were exhausted. Like about, a, with the children in the car, it was like a 14-hour trip. Should only been ten and a half, but you know, we got to stop here, there, and everywhere, and all that. And we were exhausted. And so all of a sudden, we sat down. My wife and I sat down. We made a big mistake and kind of passed out in the middle of the day when we got home. And we get a knock on the door. And I look, and a police officer standing there. And I thought, what's going on? He walks in and says, which one of you dialed 911? And we looked at Andrew. Sure enough, he just picked the phone up. He didn't know what to do. Isn't it amazing he hits 911? Said, we, we kind of figured that happened, but we just had to stop by just to see what's going on. <laughs> so it brought back to my remembrance. I hope we didn't do anything like that being almost 16 years old. But anyhow, the police officer says something took place in the neighborhood that I believe your children saw or your child saw. And it was someone picking up someone in a car. And it was right across the street from our house. He said, would you uh, mind getting your sons or son or whichever and have him fill out a paper, a report, 
talking about what he saw. He said, no problem. I couldn't do it. I didn't see anything. But he was out there, and my nephew was out there, and they saw everything that took place in that after, on that afternoon. And so they sat down, and they wrote what they saw. They testified something that they knew, that they saw. And they were witnesses to something. See, they could do it. I couldn't do it. I didn't see it. I didn't know it. So I, I didn't embrace it. You see, when we talk about confession or confessing something, it's got to come from this heart of ours. And it has to be based on affirming what we believe. We've seen this. We know it's true. Testifying to what we know. Witnessing for a truth we've embraced. I know Jesus saves. I know Jesus heals. I know Jesus delivers. I know he sets the captives free. I know there's forgiveness. I know there's mercy. Because I've experienced it. Can you, can you see that? So in other words, we're not just echoing what someone else says. This is what we know. Now, when people hear the term confession, instinctively they go to confessing something like, oh, it means sin. Or our failures, our shortcomings, our faults, and all that. That's the connotation that we give that word, confession. I grew up in a religion where you had to go to a confessional and you had to confess your sins. And there are other religions that do the same thing. You have to confess your sins. So when you think of confession, there's always a negative connotation connected to it. But you see, that might be the negative side of it. But there is a positive side to confession a positive side and that is something that we need to embrace because its truths are valuable and important and so I pray during our study tonight we could glean some light that will help us better cooperate with the high priest of our confession so that he can accomplish in all of our lives the things that he wants to but you see it requires cooperation on our part and so we're going to do this we're going to study this so let's look at our first text Confessing Jesus as Lord in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Whosoever therefore shall, what? Confess me before men. Now remember this word confession is based on a deep conviction of facts. I'm confessing him before men. Him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Notice the two-sided work of confession. We confess, he confesses. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father in heaven. This is the operation of the high priest of our confession. So if we can just begin to imagine this just for a moment, just kind of take a walk with me into the heavenlies. Here you are on earth... And you say, I confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I confess that he is my healer. I confess that he's my deliverer. I confess that whatever, he's my all in all. And that through him I am more than a conqueror. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will acknowledge you at the throne of Almighty God and declare that you are my worshiper, you are my servant, you are my son, or you are my daughter. You can say it how you want to say it, or my brother, or my sister. But the thing is, he's confessing you at the throne to the Father. 
Isn't that powerful? As I was meditating this, I was thinking, can you imagine one people at the same time confessing Jesus as Lord? How does he do that? How does he confess them all before the throne of God? But you know what? It's not for me to understand that. He's God. Let me answer me this question. How can he know how many hairs are, are numbered on every person's head? Every person. They're numbered. And some of them are really numbered. And he knows where they're at too. But anyhow. <laughs> right? He's God. Does it matter how he can do it? All I know is this. If I confess him, he will confess me. And whether it's the moment I confess him as Lord and Savior, or if it's the day I stand before the judgment seat, the, the Bema judgment seat, and he says, as I stand there and the Father looks to him and he looks to the Father and says, what about this character? Is he a rascal or what? And he looks over to the Father and says, he has confessed me before men. I confess him as part of our royal family. Right here before the throne of Almighty God. Wow, glory to God. Wouldn't that be marvelous, wonderful? Absolutely. But on the other hand, he that denies me before men will be denied before the throne of God. So if there's a great, when there's the great white throne judgment and someone stands there Okay, before the throne. And the father looks at Jesus and says, what about this rascal? Well, father, he refused to confess me before men. As a matter of fact, he denied that he needed a savior. He denied he needed any help from us. And people tried to talk to him about my saving grace and my shed blood. He absolutely mocked, scoffed, laughed at it. And said, people are weak that need religion. So, Father, I have to deny him before your throne. Can you imagine what that moment will be like in the life of that person? When he's cast into the lake of fire. What a horrible, horrible thought. Think about it. I like the first one, don't you? He confesses us before men. Okay. Now, number two. Notice in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, confession and salvation. Notice the connection between confession and salvation. And the reason why I want to really emphasize this is because I grew up, again, in religion. And in that religion, I had to recite certain prayers. And those prayers I recited had enough information in them to really get me saved. But there was a problem. My heart wasn't in it. My head was in it. I was echoing somebody else. But my heart wasn't engaged. Look at the scripture. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt what? shall confess from a deep conviction of facts with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe where? In your heart that God did what? Raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, 
and with the mouth he confesses unto salvation. Notice the connection between confession and salvation. First of all, I've got to believe something from my heart. It has to be based on a deep conviction of facts. Something that I know here on the inside. Let me ask you a question. Were you there at the gravesite? Were you there and saw the empty tomb? On the day he rose again? Have you ever seen Jesus? Anyone? Okay. But you believe. And you believe from your heart. Why do you believe from your heart? Because one day the Holy Ghost got a hold of you. And one day he brought conviction upon your soul. And you knew there was something missing in your life. And so, maybe somebody witnessed to you. I don't know your testimony. I know mine. And as the Holy Spirit continued dealing with your heart, you began to realize, I'm lost. I need a Savior. And Jesus is the one I need. And so one day you said, I believe. It's not a fairy tale. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, and He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He's the Savior of the world. And so, Father, I believe that, and so I now confess with my mouth. Look at verse 13. Romans 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I call upon that blessed name, the only name by which a man could be saved, and I declare and I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And at that moment, regeneration took place. In an instant, praise God, you were born out of death into life. Notice the connection. You believe it in your heart, and you say it with your mouth. Again, it's based on the deep conviction of facts. Not because someone just says, one, two, three, repeat after me. I realize that we pray sinners' prayers. And my prayer is that while we say it, which is why I always ask people, if you believe from your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, if you will from your heart take Him as Savior and Lord, and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him, and truly believe it and mean it and say it, you'll be saved at that instant, at that moment. But, the word in the Greek for salvation is soteria. And it doesn't just mean to save. It means to rescue. It means to heal. It means to deliver, preserve, to set free, to liberate. So if you really consider that word and what it means, this all-encompassing definition of that word, what it means is what the heart man believes to salvation or with the mouth confession is made rather to salvation. So salvation meaning soteria, which means with the mouth, we believe from the heart and confess with the mouth to salvation. We believe in the heart and confess with the mouth to being rescued or protected and delivered. Deliverance, healing, preservation, soundness, hold, all those words. Confession is closely connected with all those things that we want to enjoy and experience in life. So in other words, I've got to believe something from my heart and say with my mouth. In order for me to experience the fullness of my salvation. Thank God I'm saved by His grace through faith. But I can also be delivered. I can also be healed. I can be preserved and set free and made whole. How? Believing and saying. And that's the primary means by which we receive from God. And it's the primary means by which we take things from the unseen realm. Bring it into the seen realm in which we live. Okay. Okay. Look at the next one now. Now we're talking about the connection between confession and 
forgiveness of sin and cleansing from all unrighteousness. Look in the book of 1 John. Notice how the word confess is always coming up. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't you love that? If we say we have no sin, that is when we sin, then we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not where? In us. If we, what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice again the word confess. Here it's talking about an acknowledgement of our guilt. Of our wrongdoing. We must identify ourselves with our sin and have sincere remorse for the fact that we have sinned against God. Did something to displease Him. And you know what? If you really wanted to boil it down, this is a hard saying. But if we really wanted to boil it down, what do you think of when you think of sin? Conduct? Behavior? Most people do. I sinned. A fault, a failure, whatever. But did you know in the book of Romans, Paul said, whatever you do outside of faith is sin? Whatever is not of faith is sin in the mind of God. We're not trusting Him. We're not believing Him. We're doing things apart from faith. And so he called that sin. Well, thank God for the blood. Thank God for the blood. The blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now look at the book of Psalms because it's important that we understand the heart issue here when it comes to confessing our sin. In Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1, this is David. He committed sin with Bathsheba. You kind of sit back and you kind of hold yourself and wonder. He's a man after God's own heart, but he committed adultery. He was deceptive to Uriah her husband he tried to get him to cover for him and when he wouldn't he had him killed he committed murder after murder then he thought by marrying her because her husband was dead he could cover up the whole thing and be guiltless before God after God gave him ample time to repent this man after God's own heart Seeing that he wouldn't or that he didn't, he sent Nathan the prophet to come and tell him a little story. And in that story, he judged himself. And when he, Nathan pointed out, King, it's you. You're the one that says you should die for what you did. This is what he did. Have mercy on me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I acknowledge this is confession my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. We won't read the whole thing, but if you go on down to maybe verse 10 or something, somewhere around there, he says, create me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. 
But I want you to see the remorse. I want you to see that this is a confession that came from his heart, acknowledging that what he had done was wrong. I admit what I did was wrong. I take responsibility for my sin and my shortcoming. I'm not making any excuses for it. I'm taking full responsibility. That's why in John it said that if you say you haven't sinned when you have, then you're not telling the truth. But to receive forgiveness and cleansing, and notice the twofold work of the blood. You're forgiven. Thank God we're forgiven. But then you're cleansed. That means any, let's say, punishment that should come your way is removed. You don't allow that thing to continue to grow until judgment falls like David did. And you're cleansed from this unrighteousness. And why? Because you confess from your heart your sin before the throne. And what did the Father hear from Jesus? Father, this is, my, this is your son, your daughter. And listen to what he or she is saying. They identify with their sin, their shortcoming, their fault. They're asking for forgiveness. And Father, don't look at them. Look at me and my shed blood. Cleanse them. Forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. See, people think that when Jesus sat down, his work ended. Uh-uh. He's the high priest of the new covenant. He stands before the Father for us. He's our advocate. He's the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the world. There is a continual waterfalls of the blood of Jesus Christ that constantly cleanses us from all sin. But when we miss the mark, we confess our sin, and then it's cleansed. We're cleansed. There's not going to be any punishment. He has mercy, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. And it's all because we did what? We confessed it from the heart. And we thank God. Thank God that we're restored. And we're walking uprightly and holy before him. And we can expect great and mighty things from him. But this is part of his high priestly ministry. Now look at the, the next thing. Confession. Oh, wait a minute. Let's, let's look at these other two scriptures first. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8. When it comes to confessing our sin, godly sorrow is absolutely important and necessary. Paul is talking about three aspects of sorrow. For though I made you sorry with a letter, that's one of it, I don't repent. Though I did repent. For I perceived that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you are made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. And notice this, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice he had human sorrow. He felt sorry that he had to write the letter, a stern letter. He felt bad for that. But then there is also worldly sorrow, and that is you feel sorrow. Why? Because you are going to pay a consequence for what you did. We're sorry when we get caught, in other words. You don't want to be punished. We don't want to be punished. And so we have sorrow. We're sorry. But we're not sorry for the right reason. Not because we sinned against the holy God, but because now we're going to suffer this. So that's, human, that's godly sorrow. But there's godly sorrow. 
And godly sorrow comes from the heart that we truly are aware of the fact that we serve a holy God and we want to please Him. No, we can't walk perfect in the flesh before Him, but every time we miss the mark, we can say, Father, I'm sorry, can't we? From my heart, I mean it, forgive me. And also when you go there, don't just get mercy, find grace, which is operational power to help us the next time we face maybe a similar situation. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Let's say you got angry and you lashed out in such a way that was embarrassing to you and to the gospel and brought reproach to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that happened, what do you want to do the next time? You want to, of course, ask for forgiveness from the people or, and from God. But, but don't just get mercy. Ask for grace. Father, give me divine empowerment to help me next time in a situation like that to be angry but not to sin. Empower me. See too often we just go there for mercy and forget about the grace. And there's grace to help us in our time of need. Now Jesus set the standard. Look at Revelation chapter 2. This is from the Amplified Bible. Verses uh, 4 and 5. This is just as Jesus setting the standard for repentance and making things right. But I have this one charge to make against you, that you have left or abandoned the love that you had at first, you have deserted me, your first love. Remember then, now notice here it comes, three R's. Remember then from what heights you have fallen, to repent, change the inner man to meet God's will, and do. I call it redo, that's your third one. The works you did previously when you first knew the Lord or else I will visit you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you change your mind and repent. So in other words, remember, repent, and then just redo the first works over. And I'm sure that's what David did. He remembered, my goodness, why have I allowed myself to do such a thing like I did with Bathsheba and the cover-up and the murder and all that? I should have never done that. I left my first love. I, f I shouldn't have done this. Repent. He repented. Now, redo. Redo. The first work's over. And if you can think about it in terms of a marital relationship, do you remember when you were courting your wife and you put your best foot forward? As you were dating, as you were courting, and vice versa, you both put your best foot forward. Why? Because you wanted them to see your best foot. And that's why you put it forward. Amen. You're in love. Remember. Well, after 10, 15 years, and maybe a little bit of distance was created, uh-oh, and we're not getting along as we should, repent. Both of you repent. Because the goal of marriage is to become one, not to be separated from each other. And then do the first works over. Take her out on a date. Get her some flowers. Or whatever she likes. Keep that love affair going. Redo it. Some of you guys look at me like, really? You want me to do that? Yes, you should stay in love your whole married life with the goal of what? Becoming one before you leave this realm. Set an example of what love is really all about because part of the purpose of marriage is to what? Paint a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Is it not? Alright, so that's the standard. Now look at this next one and this next one is a tricky one and this is really the one I wanted to get to tonight and so just give me a few minutes to really expound on this. <clears throat> Confession and calling things that are not as though they are. When people first hear this, they hear it backwards, calling things that are as though they're not. That's not what it says. 
So let's read the scriptures first, Romans 4, and then I'll share some thoughts with you. 17. As it is written, I have made thee, past tense, a father of many nations. Do you know God said that before he act, it actually materialized in the natural world? God said, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom believe, or like him whom he believed. Even God who quickens the dead. And what else does God do? Calleth those things which be not as though they are. Think about that. He calls things that are not as though they are. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which is spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he calls this faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadest of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. But notice the principle of calling things which be not as though they are. So, to better explain it, we don't walk around saying, I don't have a cold when your eyes are running and you're sneezing like crazy. And it's in your voice and everybody can hear it. And we all look at you and we know you have a cold. You don't walk around and say, I don't have a cold. I don't have a cold. I don't have a cold. Some people think that's what you're supposed to say. Or, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm not sick. Let's take a vote. You're sick. But calling things that be not as though they are would be like this. I'm not going by how I feel, and I'm not going by what I see. But I ask the Lord to heal me, and I believe I receive my healing. And so I call myself healed by His stripes. I call myself healed by His stripes. I say the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is quickening my mortal body. I say I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm calling myself healed. You see the difference? I'm not walking around saying I'm not sick. I call myself healed. I call my body whole. That's calling things that are not as though they are. Um, I was listening to uh, Brother Hagin's teaching, which he did many, many, many moons ago, <clears throat> on this subject. And it really brought this to light to me because it really helps us to really understand this principle. Two particular testimonies. He was... Um, Let's start with the one where he was probably, well, he was married at the time. So suffice it to say that he was at that point. He was married. And he said his wife heard him say something that she hadn't really heard him say very much. He said, I've got this awful pain in my stomach, the lower part of my stomach. And it's awful. It's like someone has a knife in my stomach and they're twisting it. And it is awful. This pain is awful. It's awful. Some time would go by and she would say, how you, how you doing? How you feeling? This pain is brutal, man. This pain is brutal. Same thing after a while. He said, Lord, you know, need to heal me, need to help me and all that. He's asking God's intervention and, and everything. He said, but I wasn't getting any better. He, had a, he was pastoring at the time and he had a, a doctor in his, his congregation. He said, I was ready to look up his number and call him. I'm not opposed to it. He says, I just wanted, I just wanted out of this pain. And he was actually saying this, that when you have pain in your body, one of the hardest things you can do is call things that be not as though they are. 
He said, but man, I was in awful pain. He said, but as I was thinking about doing that, I said, you know what, let me just get alone with God here. He said, Lord, you don't miss it. I miss it. People miss it. We miss it. We're human. You're, you're God. You can never miss it. He said, so tell me. Help me. Where am I missing it? He said, the Lord spoke back to me and said, you're not calling things that be not as though they are or as though they were. He said, every time your wife asks you, how do you feel? You say, awful. I got this pain. We're not saying that's not true. But listen to yourself. Listen to what you're saying. He said, Lord, you're right. And you have to remember this. This was some years later after the first one. I give you this next testimony you're going to see. He operated in this before. But to show you when there's pain involved, you can be worn down. So what he did was he said, you're right. Forgive me. I repent. See, for not walking in faith. I repent. Whatever's not of faith is sin. He said, so I just want to thank you, Lord, for healing me. And I say, pain, leave my body. I call you out of my body. I call myself healed. I call myself delivered. I call myself set free. I call myself whole. He said, within an hour, all the pain left my body. I was completely healed. Think about that simple truth. We make it so hard. Now, this next testimony, which is similar, but it goes all the way back. He was about 18 years old. He got healed off the bed of affliction, really a deathbed. He was to die. He might have been 18, 19, somewhere in that area. And he said that um, he just started pastoring a church, a denominational church. There weren't many full gospel churches, hardly any around. And I think uh, after he started one, started up, but it just started up. And it wasn't really, didn't have the name of it yet at that point. But he said, he woke up one morning and he said, my whole one side of my cheek was numb, paralyzed. He said, you could pinch it and I never felt it. He says, and when I talked, the one side, I could talk from the one side of my mouth, but the other side was, I couldn't. And remember, he just got off of a deathbed. And the Lord taught him, Mark eleven twenty four. 24, it says, whatever you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them and you will have them. He said, you've got to believe you receive it first. If you believe you receive it first, then you'll start calling things that are not as though they are. So, he said, I was used to doing it for myself, but I, what I did was, I knew this full gospel pastor that just started this church that wasn't too far away. He said, so I went to the church service. And they had a different kind of a service and there were some other things going on. And normally they would have an altar call at the end. He said, but because of the lateness of the hour, he said, the pastor said, everybody stand up. He was going to give a benediction and go home. But he said, I raised my hand and said, brother pastor, before we go home, would you mind anointing me with oil and praying for me and agreeing with me for my healing? He said, oh, sure. Come on up here, Kenneth. He went up to the altar. Not him with all, pray the prayer of faith. He says, I don't know one word that man said. I was only looking for the word amen. I was waiting to hear him say amen. Because the moment he says amen is the moment I started calling things that be not as though they are. And I started saying, thank you, Lord, I'm healed. Thank you, Lord, I'm healed. And the pastor said, you're healed? He said, isn't that just like Jesus? He said, yep, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm healed, pastor. He said, Kenneth, would you give the benediction? He said, sure. He started to give the benediction. And he can only talk out of one side of his mouth. Pastor said, Kenneth, are you sure you're healed? After he got done praying. 
He said, oh yeah, the Lord healed me after you lowered me with oil. I'm healed. He said, Kenneth, you don't look healed. He said, Pastor, I didn't say I look healed. Do you feel better? I don't feel any different. Then he was with a group of young friends that were with him. And they walked up to him and said, Kenneth, you said Jesus healed you. Yeah, he did when Pastor prayed for me, no more with all. Do you feel better? I don't feel any different. You don't look any better. He said, well, I didn't say I look better. I didn't say I feel better. I said, I'm healed. He healed me when I was anointed with oil. James 5.14. He did it. It's done. Well, they went and he was with a couple of friends. They went over to that house. And the mother was there. They left that house to go to the church service. He said, um, they said to their mother, Mom, come over here and look at Kenneth. You see anything different about him? She started looking at his face, looking at him, looking, she goes, I don't know what I'm looking for. What am I looking for? Well, Kenneth, does he look any different than when he left the house to go down to the church? No. Well, mom, Kenneth says he's healed. He says he's healed. Look at his face. Does it look healed to you? Isn't that the same as when he left? Yeah. And he then chimes in. I didn't say I look healed. I didn't say I feel healed. I said, I am healed. He healed me when I was anointed with oil at the altar. When brother prayed for me, I'm healed. And they just were puzzled. They said, we don't understand this. He said, I don't understand it either. But I know it works. Then the mother spoke up and said, now, you have to remember this, girls. We lived right behind College Street where he was bedfast for 17, 18, whatever, 17 months. And we know he had a death sentence. We know the doctor that says he'll be dead in so many days, 90 days, he'll be dead after he got up from his, from his uh, deathbed, after he got healed. He'll be dead 90 days. Well, those 90 days turned into 50 years. But the mother said so listen to what Kenneth is saying because we think he might know something about faith that we don't know he said I'm sure I do I'm sure I do he told the the family he said you can look at me now but I know I'm healed and when you see me next you'll see me healed he went home next day got up went to uh, wash his, his face and all that looked in the mirror he's completely healed went back and saw his friends they said Kenneth now the Lord healed you he said no he didn't he healed me when pastor prayed for me the other night that's when I got healed that's calling things that be not as though they are and that is a principle of the word of God and that's what God does he calls things that are not as though they are and really he instructs us to by faith call things that are not as though they are and so as we look at the definition of faith and we insert that particular definition you could say we walk by faith not by sight we walk by calling things that are not as though they are not by sight and that's exactly what he was doing calling things that are not as though they are and so that principle is important to all of us now what's important to know is this we quote the verses we sing the songs for example um, God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts have we not 
Don't we always confess those scriptures and, and, and basically repeat what they say? But when we are faced with a principle that challenges the way we think, then we kind of think, well, that's stupid. That can't be right. Well, if God's ways are higher than our ways, if God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, I may not understand why calling things that are not the way they, calling things that are not, okay, calling things that are not as though they are, if I don't understand that, does it mean it doesn't work? Does it mean it's not a biblical principle? Does it mean that God hasn't revealed to us how it works or that it should work? Just because it's higher than the way we think. You see, think about this. It might be illogical to us, but it works. Well, let me ask you about this. What logic is there to walk around Jericho's wall seven times? And on the seventh day, do it seven times that day. And don't talk while you're doing it every day of the week. But on the seventh day, when you hear the ram's horn, just shout. Uh, Lord, excuse me, that's your strategy for bringing down the walls of Jericho? And the giant armies that we're going to be facing? Are you serious? Hmm. Okay. What about Noah? Build an ark. You mean the little dinghy boat that I can... No, 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 no. No, this thing is 450 feet long. 75 feet wide. And so many feet high. Double deck or triple deck, whatever it was. It has never rained. There's never been a flood. What logic is there to doing something like that? And we could go on and they, what about this one? They're out of wine. You see those water pots? Go fill them up with water and bring them to the governor of the feast and serve it to him. What logic is there to that? What logic is there to throw that tree in the bitter waters at Mara? They're poisonous waters, but throw a tree in. I dare you to try it. And they'll be purified. Fresh drinking water for you. Does that make any sense? Is it logical or illogical? And we can go on and on and on and just say, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Well, the same thing is true about call the things that are not as though they are and that is the principle of faith and that is what takes things out of that realm into this realm and in order to instill this principle in the life of in the lives of Abram and Sarai he changed their names to Abraham and Sarah and every time he said, Sarah, mother of many, and every time she said, Abraham, father of many nations, they were calling things that are not as though they were, and they did it every day, every night, every day, every night, every day, for days and days and nights and nights, over and over, mother of many, father of many nations, mother of many, father of many nations. They called each other that when they didn't even have a child. But the result was, it 
recreated within her the ability for her to conceive and have a child and also with him this was a powerful way that God instilled within them this principle basically without them really having to understand a whole lot about it Think, look at what it did for them it rejuvenated their whole lives see but sometimes we hear these things and we don't understand the true concept of it and so we kind of hear it and say okay and we cast it by the wayside but beloved I'm telling you this is a powerful, powerful way to bring things from the spiritual world to the natural world. When we start calling things that are not as though they were, based on a deep conviction of facts, not because someone else said to do it, but based on something that we know. We embrace this truth. We believe this truth. He said to do it. Faith calls things that are not as though they were so they could become. While we look not at things that are seen but things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary and subject to change. But the things that are not seen are eternal. So in other words, we look at the eternal unchanging things of God and call them above the lower things that can be changed, that can uh, you know, be, be dealt with supernaturally. So what we do is, I call myself well. I call myself whole. I, now, here's, here's what happens. What we do is we, say, we call things as they are. I can't find a job. Man, I'm never going to find a job around here in Beaver County. Place is dried up and all that. Guess what? I used to hear people say that way back when I, we lived in, in uh, Midland and the church was down there and then the mill went out and then everybody moved out and everybody kept saying this place this place and everybody's moving everybody this is an older generation blah 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 that's all finally one day my brother Chuck and I came in here we started walking around in this place right here before when it was a car dealership and this was the body shop we'd walk around here and we start saying something different we start trumping what they were saying and we start saying what we believed that God is bigger than any economy, anywhere, any place. And if people will hook up together with God and start calling things that are not as though they are, they can become a reality. And I'm not taking any credit for any of this. I believe we as a body have done it. Well, I'm sure that others have done it. You know, we hear now possibly 10,000 people will be coming in to be employed when they start doing these plants that are around here. Think about that. Moving into this area right here. They're talking about... Call, moon area being possibly like a cranberry area imagine that you see we're going to get what we say we're going to get what we believe from our heart and say with our mouth and so if we want reality with God then we need to do what the word says so instead of saying I can't find a job there's no, no job to be found around here my God is bigger than what's going on around here. And if need be, he'll make a way for me where there is no way. I believe I receive a job. I was told when we lived in Midland, there's no way you can sell your house. You're not going to get what you want for your house. The, the, the agent, the real estate agent said to me, houses haven't sold in two years. You see all the for sale signs up there all around the neighborhood? I've had those listings and they've been there for two years. People have come down to half price and they're still not selling. This was after the mill went down and all that. He said, what do you want for your house? I want what it's worth. I'm not selling for anything less. He said, if you want to move it, you better take half price or something like that. I said, I don't want it on the market for half price. I'm a fair person. If it's worth it, that's what I want. That's what I want. Okay, I'll do it. You're the boss. I'll do it. Two years, all these houses haven't sold. That's what they said. 
I took out my Bible. I walked around the property. I held it up to heaven. And I said, Father, as long as this house was in my possession, I thank you for it. It's been a wonderful house. And we're blessed to have the house. And the way we got it and all that. And we just thank you so much for it. But now it's time for another. I release this house to your charge and care. Angels of God, I loose you and release you to go find a buyer for the house. House, I call you sold. You mean you talk to your house? Uh-huh. And I called things that are not as though they were and said, you are sold in the name of Jesus. And every day, thank you, Lord, for the buyer. I received the buyer. I have the buyer. Calling things that are not as though they are. My house is sold in Jesus' name. Calling things that are not as though they are. Thirty days later, he comes over to my house. He says, these people want to buy your house and they want full price. They're not asking you to come down one penny. I said, thank you. Thank you. Let's do it. So those houses that hadn't sold in two years. Can you imagine how many times they said, just can't sell our house. Just can't sell our house. Can't find a buyer for our house. They all fall through. It just seems like nobody can buy the house. We're, the economy is so bad. They kept on saying it and saying it. And what did they get? What they said. What did we say? And I better stop because I can preach on faith until Jesus comes. Because if I start talking about Andrew, then it's all over. So let's all stand up. Hi, Pastor Bill here. I want to thank you for joining us today. On behalf of my wife, Krista, and Krista Selby Church, I want you to know that we're here to serve you and your family. Whether you have young children or kids in elementary school, if you're a teenager or a young adult, we have a passion to provide a safe and comfortable environment where you can grow in God and build a solid foundation of His love for you. And with that foundation, we encourage you to take the gospel of Jesus Christ with you wherever you go. It is our heart at Christian Assembly to be an outreach, to be the hand of God toward Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We want to join as the body of Christ to make one last trumpet call before the final trumpet sound. And through a life of worship, bring in a harvest of people. With whatever gifts God has given you, we want you to be free to share those gifts and talents. Life is most fulfilled when we share God's love with others. And in all that we do, we want to demonstrate the power of the name of Jesus to the world through a ministry of excellence to God first and then also to you. So whatever the situation, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, I want you to know that we love you and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan begins by making Jesus the Lord and the Savior of your life. And if you've never made that decision yet, I'd like to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. And if you will, Jesus will become your Savior and your Lord. Just repeat after me this prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. And I now accept you and receive you as my personal Savior and Lord. Heavenly Father, I have called on the name of Jesus. I'm now your child, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.